Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Jason Collier here. With Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. podcast where we discuss the technology trends and what to look for in the next year. Keith and J- Jason, what would you like to talk about today? Keith? AI, man. What do you mean? What do I want to talk about today? <laughs> so uh, AI has got a lot of different perspectives. Uh, the whole thing about chat GPT and GPT 3, 4, and 5 and open AI and stuff like that, it's all generative AI. You want to talk the generative AI problem, solution, world? So, you know, uh, what, what did I, where, where did I see you last? Was it supercompute? And you were saying that, you know, you had been following AI since the, uh, uh, the dawn of, of the world, like, like did a dawn of computer science basically. Yeah. And it's odd that up, up until like this past year, you know, AI has been this thing that, Oh, is it AI? Is it ML? We, we're not even having that conversation anymore because i think the computer scientist view of this is that generative ai is still machine learning but it's you know uh, generative ai i think has changed the nomenclature that um what we would have classified as machine learning is now generally accepted as ai and generative ai has taken the air out of all of the uh, of the air including for the rest of the ai world and there's yeah. plenty of other ai great ai use cases right 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 well yeah the generative ai is is ai obviously and it's got its its uh its nuances with respect to how they embed the the tokens and the and the attention logic and all that stuff but in the end it's 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 sort of supervised learning on on uh on real data, you know, the text data, they just kind of knock out a word and they try to predict what the word should be. Uh, a lot of sophistication in this world and there's a lot of parameters and, and a lot of uh, hardware to make this all happen. But in the end, it's, it's, it's supervised machine learning kind of stuff. The, uh, Jason, the, what are you seeing from the, from the processor side of things? Oh, yeah. Well, clearly, like, that, that is a, a huge driver, uh, basically both in, like, kind of, CPU and GPU, CPU specifically in the inferencing uh, world has been, uh, there's just a lot going on there. And uh, I look back at, uh, you know, kind of this last year in 2023 and think of some of the areas where where I've been using uh, generative AI. This would be a good question to kind of go around, like uh, kind of some of the use cases that you guys have been using. But honestly, one of the ones I've been doing, um, anytime I need to write like, you know, a, a bash script a, a powershell script anything like that um i've actually been using uh generative ai to do that quite a bit and no way. It's, uh, oh yeah it's awesome um oh, so God. an example type of stuff or what so actually i i just go into chat gpt so an example of this like so powershell so so i i literally will ask chat gpt i'm like hey write me a powershell script that'll connect into my vcenter server uh, do a listing of a folder and output that to a CSV file and it writes the code right no. now 
it'll get, um, I usually find it'll get probably about 80 to 80 to 90% there. And then there's a few tweaks that I always end up making. But when you think about it, I mean, that's just mundane code work, right? You know, when, when you do that and you typically, you know, when you're, when you're writing stuff, you'll come up with a series of libraries that you always use, like, Oh, you know, getting a listing of, of, you know, VMs in a folder kind of thing. Uh, and then you reuse that code, you know, nonstop. But one of the oh, things oh. that, that you can do is have it. I mean, I had it where it would go in, sp pick a specific thing. And then I'll say, okay, now let's do some operations on a VM. Let's start them, stop them. Let's change this configuration with all VMs that are named this. And you can kind of just describe it and have it write the code. And like I said, it'll get you about 90% of the way there without having to do any of the, any of the legwork. Yeah, so I'm I'm doing like the ultimate experiment with this, the ultimate social experiment. I have a buddy, he's uh, let's just say he's in his mid-60s, and he had contracted about eight years ago, he contracted out to have this golf tournament program uh wrote. He wants to basically sell subscriptions of this to uh golf courses. So every time, you know, he needs a new report, et cetera, he'd hire contract labor to do that. And I said, you know what? What would be a really interesting experiment is to see if you can get chat GTP to modify your code for you instead of you paying, you know, uh, contract labor a few hundred dollars every time you need to make a change. Does a, will a $20 a month investment get you there? So not only is he learning you know, kind of prompt engineering and to do what Jason, you've been doing with infrastructure code, but actually do this with customer facing code. And his first step has been, he's taking all of the code files, feeding it into chat GTP and asking chat GTP to document the code because the, uh, developers that originally developed the code did a horrible job at documentation back. Basically there's not any, I look at the code and I, and I say, I can't read this. And the in chat GTP, while it doesn't know the context that this is uh, a golf uh, application, which I guess you can tell it that it's a golf application, is doing a fairly good job of documenting the code. And then his next step will be to like edit a report or generate a new report. So it is, you know, it's it's I, I know there's some naysayers out there, but I don't know if you get more practical than that. Yeah. Uh, and oh, yeah. Uh, uh, a chat. Uh, Slack chat thing, and a guy had asked if there was any um, copilot-like functionality or chat GPT-like functionality for RPG two. I said, "You gotta be kidding me! The problem, <laughs> the problem is, there's just not enough RPG two out there in, in in the world that's public that that could be used to even understand what 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 the thing looks like, let alone how to modify it or understand it or even document it. So there there are obviously, you know, where there's a lot of data." I think you're going to find that something like ChatGPT or its its follow-ons are going to be able to to, to manipulate it, understand it, document it, maybe even uh, you know provide some rudimentary code for it. But there are some languages out there that don't exist in in GitHub, you know, and don't exist in in vast quantities of public domain uh, source code libraries. That's going to be a problem. Yeah, one of the other really cool things uh, that that you're able to do with it is is actually have it write it and rewrite code in different things so example i would write something in bash and tell it to okay rewrite this in c rewrite it in python rewrite it in Perl uh if you want right and uh 
it's really interesting. Keith, you brought up another really good, good piece about how it actually uh, does the documentation. I notice all the code that it produces, it does a fantastic job of actually documenting it as it's writing it. Yeah. So one of the other things that I've been using it for, so you talked about practical use cases. What chat GTP and these large language models are generally very good at, ironically, is language, like the science of language. And we talk about hallucination and the problem with hallucination. The reason that the hallucination is so dangerous is because these LLMs are extremely good at language and understanding the structure of language. So whether that language is a uh, is a is a uh, vocal or 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 communications language, or if it's a computer language, it knows the structure to deliver. So when I'm doing something like proposing a new project to an Intel or an AMD. My first stop is actually chat GTP because the what I've struggled with in these large organizations is communicating past my sponsor. So I would, I'd have a great idea, you know, come sponsor the CTO advisor uh, data center and you, you have these outcomes. My first level sponsor gets it. Absolutely. They're ready to go. And that second level sponsor doesn't get it. They're like, wait, explain this to me. How is sponsoring in a data center in Chicago by this random analyst going to help us sell more stuff? Chat GTP and these LLMs are really good at understanding what should be in the proposal. It may not be right, but the details of the structure of language and how you communicate a proposal is there. And that's where I found value is that these things are really good at the science of language and communication. Oh, yeah. well, you're right. You're, you're, helping, you're, you're using generative AI to help write statements of work, proposals that, that, that get consumed by vendors to, to try to understand what you're going to do and stuff like that. Yeah. So what I've learned happens is I'm not very verbose in email communication because I don't like reading long emails. Evidently, I'm an exception to the rule. People <laughs> like long, detailed emails. So what I'll have is I'll go in and I'll feed the GTP. Hey, tell me, give me a proposal to compare AMD Epic to Intel from the lens of one of these two companies hoping to compete against one another and right. feed it details about, you know, all the, my service offerings, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm telling you, it, it gets me 80% of the way there. And all I have to do is go in and tweak, you know, just some details. They'll say, you know, the CTO advisors audience is a million people or whatever. Some, you know, some, it, it's very good at, uh, at, and I don't want to say it's hallucination. I think the, the thing is a placeholder. It is a detail that it can't possibly know. And you need to go back and check the work and, and, and plug in the correct details. But the language is absolutely correct and extremely effective. I, I, I can't tell you how effective this is when it has increased my rent win rate for uh, proposals. I, I have way. written some outstanding letters of recommendation this year. <laughs> because ChatGPT, because ChatGPT wrote it. <laughs> the, uh, but I think you know, I think we're hitting in on one thing that's pretty, you know, across the board. 
uh, when you're talking about these large language models and, the, and actually having it supplement work. And when you think about it, if you use it as a tool and not use it as a replacement, it's highly effective. And, you know, Keith, you mentioned it gets you about 80% of the way there. And that's kind of that 80% seems to be what I've got out of out of the help the large language model can help you doing specific tasks in which it was it's really good for doing. Um, but there's still that additional 20%. But I think if you think of AI as a tool in a toolbox, and if you use it the right way, it can be highly, highly effective. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of like the translators have been using these translation tools for the last decade or so. They get you 80, 90% there, but it's not a perfect solution to translation. So that you know, they, they run this translation through, you know, Google Translate or whatever, whatever the current solution is, and 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 uh, they tweak it from there. It's the same thing with dictation, right? Dictation yeah, hasn't necessarily been 100% perfect over over the years, but it's gotten better, but over time uh, you know, you can use it as kind of a bulk dictation. It's a transcription stuff for podcasts and stuff. I've, I've looked at that. And it's fairly pretty good, actually. And I don't even have to do anything anymore to 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 mess with it. But it's it's the generative AI is trained on this vast, vast, vast quantities of text that are available in in the in the internet today. And and yeah, you're right. It it knows language. It knows how, how to put together a proposal or put together a memo or put together a bash script. It's got all that kind of skills. I, God, my, you know, my challenge is, you know, we, I don't know, Keith, you're a blogger. I'm a blogger. Jason, you've been a blogger in the past. You know, the, the, the fact that they're using our text to train their models is a concern to me. Yeah, that doesn't bother me at all. The, doesn't bother you at all. The, oh, God, I mean, yeah, you've got that, more text than I do. Yeah, that that doesn't really bother me. I, you know, I've put the the I don't get paid to for volume or data. I get paid for influence. So until Chat GTP and these LMs can replace my influence, then I'm not worried. The people come to me, they follow me, they follow me because I'm Keith. And ironically. You know, I was at a HPE, uh, <laughs> a HPE analyst event a few years ago, and one of the analysts was kind of digging in at, at my business model. And for those who don't know my business model, it's simple. I sell influence. I'm a marketer. I, I have no qualms about it. I provide value to my readers by giving them data and information that helps them get to their jobs. The readers choose not to pay me to do that. Yeah. The vendors will give me money to access my readers. That's a it is a transaction that has worked. And why my readers trust me be, is because they see me and Melissa and the RV. We're at shows. We're putting in the work. And one of the analysts said, Keith, you know, these analysts that kind of make their work about them and not about the data. I don't think they're going to last pretty much a dig at my business model. Fast forward to the world of AI and the data is kind of free or the data is seemingly free. Someone still has to push the envelope and, and discover more for these LMs to learn and take over. Who do you trust in this world? And when uh, I'm right now, I'm at an advantage. <coughs> Excuse me. 
I'm at an advantage right now. I'm at an advantage because I'm a real person and people trust me. So, you know, this is bound. This is technology is bound to happen. You know, chairs, chairs get automated. The, the, uh, the production of chairs gets automated. Yeah. But so, you know, let's say I wanted to do a chat GPT. I want to, I want to mimic Keith Townsend's uh, report on, you know, Epic versus Intel or, or AMD versus Intel. And, uh, you know, it generates, you know, 80% of, of, of what Keith would say about these things. Yeah, and, it would. And it's that 20% that matters. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> you know you're, 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 you speak a couple of languages. If, play, but, but, you know, tomorrow it's, it's 90% there. And, and the yeah, next and day. And that's fine. And I'll, it can be 100% there. And I really wouldn't I'd celebrate it. And, I'm, and the, you know, we, we either, as computer scientists, we either celebrate the advancements in science or we are feel fearful of those advancements in science. We take the tool for what it is and we abstract the value and we add value at a higher level. There's always going to be value at a higher level. You know, we the, the network industry suffers from this. Well, if you automate the configuration of a Cisco switch, what am I going to do if, I, you know, if I'm not configuring the switch there's plenty of things for you to do if you're not going if you're automating the blog and the writing and the opinion then what else am i going to do well you know what it is a very different human experience to engage a consultant who is talking to someone who has 25 years of of experience and farmer versus manufacturing and taking that output and uh, applying it to your unique industry. There's going to always be specialization and ways to add value. Yeah. I, I heard a quote the other day that that is pretty poignant when you think about it, especially, especially when it comes to AI and it's a, that knowledge is not information and information is not knowledge. Right. So giving, you know, that information to say a junior analyst, you know, doesn't suddenly provide them with knowledge. Right. And it's, it's going to be interesting. And this also, by the way, reminds me of kind of in, in the eighties when everybody was afraid robots were going to take their jobs right at, at factories. And while they displaced certain things, basically a new skill set needed to be learned. I see the same thing you know, with, with generative AI, it's going to be a tool that's going to be inserted in there. And if you don't understand it and you don't teach it, this is another thing I'm really concerned with how education is looking at AI right now. And I think they are looking at it the wrong way through the wrong lens. Um, they're treating it like it's something that's bad. And if you don't have an understanding and, and firm grasp of it, you know, somebody else will, and you will lose competitive advantage. And if we're not teaching our kids how to use this the right way, they, it's, it's something that, that needs to be, it needs to be thought of, uh, on a deeper level. So speaking of education, you know, all throughout history, automation has, has displaced certain activities or certain skills and, and, uh, effectively created new ones. Right. I mean, you know, the, the, the guy that's managing the robot or coding the robot or training the robot versus doing stuff on the on the assembly line. I, I, I understand all that. And I, I'm good with all that. But to a large extent, those sorts of things were uh, within a constrained environment that that, you know, I I directed somebody to train this robot to do this particular skill. Uh, the, the large language models. 
they are taking advantage of the, of the fact that we've created this massive text repository called the internet and are, are going about training, training these models to be able to, to, uh, to speak our language, to code our, code our projects, to, to uh, create our contracts. Uh, the yeah, I'm not, I, Ray, I think you're underestimating the human spirit to disrupt things. I think the AI and the capabilities that they create will create new markets and new opportunities. We can't see them right now. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I can predict what those opportunities and things will be. I just know history has proved itself over and over and over again. When technology enables us to do things quicker, faster, cheaper, we create value on top of that. As human beings, we have this uh, innate opportunity and innate opportunity uh, ability to create new markets and new opportunities. And I'm counting on AI doing that for me. If I don't ever have to, I don't write blog posts because I enjoy it. I write blog posts because that's how I create uh, content that my audience wants to consume or value that I want to consume. If AI replaces me having to have to write another blog post, I'm, I welcome that. And the value that I bring, I can now do more of that, which is not actually writing blog posts. The value isn't me writing blog posts. The value is in something else. And I have to do the work in figuring out what that is. I, don't know. The, I, uh, I, like, I like writing blog posts. I enjoy it. I think it's, it's part of me providing you know, my skills and expertise and knowledge to, to the world. Uh, it, it's something I enjoy doing. It's something I don't do enough. It's something that takes a long time for me to do, actually. Yeah, and I, and I think that's okay. I think, you know, you have, you know, this goes back to the, uh, to the bricklayer uh, initiative. You're either, you know, you, you can be an artist and really into the art of laying bricks. You can be a worker and you're just laying bricks because that's what you get paid to do. Or you can be the person who's really uh, involved in and, and, and know the bigger picture of creating a cathedral. All of those roles are valid and great, and they all will get disrupted when you get an automated bricklayer. So the question becomes, what becomes your new role in this new uh, uh, paradigm? Yeah. The I mean, it's really t- tough if, if you were the worker who just depended on the revenue from laying bricks because all you cared about was the revenue, then this is disruptive. If you're the artist who really loved about loved the art of laying bricks, I think the, the craft market has proven that there's always going to be a market for, the, you know, that hand hand crafted art. I think that is very, very uh, much a, a future path for those folks. And if you're the cathedral builder, you're just going to build more cathedrals. Yeah, yeah. You can tell that crap thing by the beer. The beer brew pubs are all blowing up all over the place, at that, uh, which is good. I, I, I think so. I think there is a, there is always a space for you know, pure craftsmanship in any endeavor. And I, I understand that, you know, as, as automation takes over certain skills, you have to kind of move up the, up the stack to some extent to, to try to take advantage of that and, and be able to, to manage or monitor that sort of activity at a higher level. And as it gets, as it gets more and more sophisticated, yeah, th- those levels have to increase. 
And if you are interested in the bricklaying of how large language models work, Stephen Wolfram did a phenomenal blog post on it uh, earlier this year. I think it was like February of 2023. And um, you should in include that in the show notes, Ray, but it, it goes into basically the in-depth uh basically how does chat gpt work what specifically is the math behind it and and it's a it is a really good uh kind of primer on the understanding and it can go pretty pretty deep so uh it, it will be definitely it's it's a good resource to look at yeah i really appreciate you bringing that back up i read that earlier this year it was i was blown away by the level of detail in a blog again a blog post yeah. Uh, but it was, I, I learned an incredible amount about the science behind and math behind uh, LLMs. Really They've been doing a good job. Okay, well, let's kind of adjust this a little bit. So what's the effect of uh, generative AI happening? On, how is it affecting the enterprise? I think, I, mean, we, you know, I think the hardest thing is, what do I do with it? I think, Jason, you mentioned that you know, like every CEO is acting their CIO to take up AI. Yeah, we have been seeing that a lot um, where you know, there's such a buzz around it. And honestly, I think from, you know, if you're hitting this from basically a C-level within an organization, it doesn't matter what your organization is. Your customers likely are going to want to know that you've got a plan to integrate AI somehow into your business uh, as a shareholder, right, <laughs> over the next uh over the next uh, year or two. And I think there's a lot of tasking that's coming down from, from the C-suite that is, that is saying, hey, we need to get on top of this AI thing. You guys are the computer dudes, figure it out. And like I, the cloud I, was like a decade ago. Everybody had to go to the cloud. You gotta move our yeah, operations. Exactly. The cloud. the cloud is where the future is, et cetera, et cetera. It's taken a decade to realize, okay, yeah, the cloud is important, but it's not an end all. Yeah, so, you know, Jason, this puts us geeks in like a really tough situation, right? We, we're used to being responsive to the business needs. So if a organization comes to you and says, hey, we need to build a system that takes orders over the web, we kind of understand that. Like, okay, you've given me a set of requirements and I can build a system to that set of requirements. But to randomly come and say, we need to figure out AI, and we're like, wait, what's the business problem? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that is so often the question that most people forget to ask. Um, and one of the best sales guys I ever knew, uh, every time he would walk into a room, the number, the first question that would come out of his mouth is, what business problem are you trying to solve? And like every presentation that he would give would then tailor it around what, you know, the company had to help fix that problem. Right. Yeah, and two sides to this, this AI coin that you have to think about. One is yeah. the business problem. No doubt that's, that's the critical aspect of the thing. But the other one is where's the data? You can't play this mm -hmm. language model game or, or, or ML game or AI game unless you've got data to train with. Well, you know, the great thing is, is that we've gone through this phase of big data for the past, what, 10 years now? Yeah. And I, I don't think there's a question whether or not the data exists. I think there's questions around how do we get that data to 
the GPUs to train it, there is a question of how do we organize it, as set, how do we tag it, how do we make sure that data that shouldn't be part of the LLM isn't part of the LLM, uh, that we own the data, et cetera. I think there's a lot of governance questions around the data, but I don't think there's a, any doubt that the data exists in most organizations asking the AI question. Yeah. The other question is, it's, you know, AI is more than generative AI. It's, it's a generative AI is sexy and smart and it's out there and visible today, but AI has been a long, long process to come to this place. And there's just lots of stuff in the AI space that, that can be applicable to, you know, generic businesses. I mean, talk about facial recognition or, or image, uh, image classification or, you know, uh, handwriting analysis and stuff like that, you know, doing forms, filling out forms and stuff like that. It's, it's just, a, there's just a lot that AI can do that's not large language models. It's not generative AI. Yeah. There, you know, there's predictive failure models. If, oh God, yeah. you know, if I point a camera at a mechanical system, can it, uh, do some uh, AI vision to look at structural fractures that I that the human eye can't see. There's right. all kinds of applicability, and then there's the question for you know folks that listen to this podcast: What infrastructure should I be buying for AI in general? And it's a really this isn't like big data where we can say you know go out and buy a lot of fast disk or deep storage or whatever the characteristics of that technology is ai is so diverse that i don't know you do i need a do i need a pool of h100s or do i need some uh some of amd's new uh, gpus intel's gpus can i do this with cpus like what where am i in the ai consumption model and lnm creation model where where, where do I need to size my infrastructure? It's a, a really, really difficult question that I'm talking to a lot of folks about that they're not able to answer because they haven't gotten clear business yeah. requirements. I mean, the, the, I, I, I think there was a lot of experimentation in 2023. People would go out, get a workstation, get a GPU and start messing around, you know, messing around with a CUDA or Rockham and seeing what they can do on an individual system. Now, when you get to the level of scaling this to a business, you need a lot more horsepower than that. And like you said, Keith, there's really, there's, there's not a lot of, of off the shelf, like what do you buy for the enterprise? Because if you're saying, Oh, here's an open source, you know, here's some open source stuff on GitHub. That's going to go over the capabilities of what a lot of it shops can handle. Right. You have to look at something like ML perf and ML commons. They've been doing this, you know, training and inferencing benchmarks for, you know, classes of, of AI models, or God, probably five or six years now. So you can look at those sorts of things and try to understand, okay, if I want my inferences to be on the order of a half a second and I'm doing some image classification, you know, this is the type of work that that they do that on, or this is the infrastructure required to, to make that happen. It's not perfect. It's not all <laughs> expanding. It doesn't cover every possible corner case in the world. I, I think the other thing that's, you know, that, that's, that's evident today is the cloud. So if you, you know, if you don't know what your infrastructure right. is going to be, be required to do some you know, model uh, training at X or model inferencing, you can kind of start this stuff up in the cloud and see what it costs and see what it looks like to, to make it happen. It, and, and, and then decide that you know, the expense is high enough that, that I want to bring it on, back on, on, on premises and stuff like that. So I think those, right. are the, those are a couple of things that you can use to try to 
get a handle on what are the infrastructure requirements. Uh, yeah, storage is, is an important part about that. You know, yeah. how, to, how to configure your storage to support, you know, keeping those GPUs busy and all that stuff is, is, is another whole discussion here. How to, how to design your network so that, yeah. you know, the, the latency between GPUs are, is, you know, is such that you're not, I think yeah. the average utilization of GPUs is somewhere around 20% even yeah. in the most busiest environments. So, and a lot of that is dealt with just system to system latency. We'll talk about CXL probably next year when it's moved on uh, to higher level maturity, but these are the types of problems that's happening around AI and the solving. So I, I got to ask the question, gents, is AI the only thing that's happening in 2024? Like what, I mean, we, we've over half the podcast, we've talked about AI. Is AI the only topic? It's a hot topic. The only other topic I can think of besides AI, which is dominating the the, the industry in, mul in multiple dimensions, is the VR VMware brocade. And, and, and you know, there's a VMware brocade AI side. Broadcom. Of we got to put respect on that name, uh, Ray. It's <laughs> you said brocade. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're you're, like, you're a storage guy. I understand. <laughs> my bad. It started with okay. your class. Well, I mean, you know, the, the acquisition happened. Uh, the world has not fallen apart yet. Uh, you know, I, I was in a meeting with, with VMware, oh, God, last year when they were started, just started to talk about the acquisition and stuff like that. And the executive said something was very interesting. He says, you know, VMware has been purchased and sold multiple times over the years, and we've always survived, and we will survive this transition as well. Uh, yeah, it's going to be changes. There's going to be things that that will you know be done differently, but in the end, you know we're still here to provide virtualization to the enterprise. We're still here to provide services to the cloud. We're still here to do everything we were doing before. Yeah, I will caveat his statement. I push back a little bit on it. Uh, VMware has been bought and sold several times over the past years, indirectly. VMware has always been since EMC spun out. 20% of the VMware org. VMware has been this weird uh, entity with this complicated ownership structure where 80% of the company is owned by whether it's Dell or EMC and 20% of it has been owned by the public. This is the first time in VMware's history that VMware has been bought 100%. And there is no, the only fiduciary uh, responsibility is to the Broadcom shareholder. So Broadcom can basically do whatever they want without public outside of their own shareholder concerns. So that while it simplifies the ownership structure, it is very different. It is a very different transaction than in years past. Now, I, I completely concur, but you'd think that somebody like Broadcom is going to innately it's going to change the business model for vmware i i, I see they already they, so they i was in a analyst uh session uh one of many analyst session yesterday where they talked about the new licensing gave us a rundown on new licensing and i can tell you some sacred cows were killed yesterday like the vmware has historically had horrendously complicated uh uh price lists and SKUs. It was extremely difficult to figure out. Maybe not quite Microsoft level difficult to figure <laughs> out, but you know, they it, they weren't a, pl a pleasure to deal with when it comes to buying 
vSphere. They've simplified it. You basically have two levels of uh, bundled uh, VMware solutions for if you want, you know, the virtualization product. And they've simplified it to the point where I can take my VMware licenses, my vSphere licenses, and use them in the public cloud, use them globally across countries, uh, use them in a colo, use them on my own facilities, etc. They've gone to the subscription model. It is much simplified and much warranted. And this is something that VMware has been wanting to do, but unable to do for over a decade. Yeah. And it took the the purchase of, you know, Hakan, I think uh Jason uh you might have mentioned it and I I've, I was going to mention it too. Hakan is is pretty he's a machine. Uh the the vmware.com email addresses all don't work. And I don't know if we're a right. month into this acquisition or a month into this acquisition. If you're trying to email your business contacts at VMware with their VMware address, it will bounce. It will bounce. Uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta cut, cut the umbilical cord at some point. You know, uh, I understand it's not not perfect, and, but it's it's and you know you, you mentioned the subscription model and, and you know how that's a sort of a change, but but in in essence, the the business still is there. It's still providing the same solutions. It's still providing the same capabilities to the enterprise, and 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 that's not going to change. And if anything, it'll be accelerated in a in a, in a more focused, more enterprise focused environment. I think. Yeah, I don't think I, you know, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the Broadcom acquisition of VMware, but I'm also not a doomsdayer uh, who says, oh, you should look to migrate off of VMware. And, you know, I asked this basic question and Hakan has asked this question, migrate to what? Like, yeah, to what? VMware customers have talked about migrating off vSphere for years Everyone complain, complains about the price once they, you know, it's, it's this, this effect of this innovator's dilemma of another angle where you've added this really great value of consolidating servers. And over the years, people kind of forget what that value is. And they just look at the expense and they say, wow, VMware is one of my biggest expenses. Even though if, there, if I was to look at the alternative, I, uh, I'd pay more. The basic problem is that VMware is still one of my biggest expenses. How do I ruthlessly optimize cost? And VMware has been, quote unquote, too expensive and customers have wanted to leave. But to what? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's not a lot of solutions out there that, that, that provide the same capabilities at a lesser expense. I mean, you can all go to bare metal, but bare metal is a suicide for most of these guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, that, that was like a, part of the reason for changing, you know, anyway. And when you look at basically the consolidation numbers you could get on a CPU now, I mean, you're talking about you've just consolidated 50 physical boxes down into one. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's not going to be cheaper to go out and buy 50 servers. Yeah, yeah. With 128 cores and, you know, dual, yeah. dual CPU sockets. I remember talking serious com- compute there. And you just can't. Yeah. yeah it, yeah, you know, okay. talking a little bit more technical, there's no solution that does memory management, uh, no virtualization platform that does memory management better than uh, VMware. And the simple fact is you you get higher consolidation rates with VMware than you do with other solutions. And that means 
more efficiency, more cost savings. So while the license cost might be higher for VMware, you get more value. So yeah. it is a it is a uh, if you're a customer and you don't you just you know you can't stand the Broadcom uh, way of doing business and you want to leave Broadcom, you're in a tough you're, you're in a you're in a tough thicket. Well, yeah, and the reality is the only companies that have done it are large cloud service providers, right? And because they literally are writing their own stacks on top of the open source virtualization tools that are out there, but your enterprise. Like if you don't have cloud level developers uh, and we're talking infrastructure cloud developers um, at your enterprise, you're never going to have a solution that's more custom built for enterprise than than what uh, VMware and vSphere environments are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they've 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 been better themselves in the cloud, too. I mean, with VCF and all that stuff being being the hybrid cloud, you know, provider of, Mm -hmm. of, of choice throughout the world. I mean, the enterprise. They already have the enterprise, and they're starting to starting to influence the cloud activity as well. It's 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 just it, you can't you can't leave it without real pain. Now, where I do see a weakness is this VCF is great for if you have the use case for VCF, but if you want true cross cloud multi cloud capabilities, VMware has to do a better job of abstracting or integrating into native cloud services and giving customers what they want, which is native cloud services, but managed in a traditional IT style. And VCF ain't that. So uh, it is great for if you wanna take your VMware vSphere model and run it across multiple clouds. But if you want, you know, let's super simplify this. If you want AWS, but you just want it in Google Cloud infrastructure that's not vcf it's not a way of 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 consuming native cloud services or cloud native services across multiple clouds in a consistent uh operations model and that's where the opportunity and the challenge that vmware has been unable to solve over the past few years or at least customers haven't been responsive to yeah, you lose a lot that. of the cloud, you know, have lose a lot of the native functionality, right, um, is, is the problem. And that's why a lot of the cloud uh, apps are the way they are, you know, having specific, you know, engineered database solutions. And then basically the whole networking stack and how all that stuff works is is unique to the cloud. And but it's also it's it's the advantage of it. Right. It's uh, it, it does offer competitive advantage. And. Basically, you know, I mean, the VMware uh, uh, offerings in the cloud are you basically got a bare metal box that's sitting that, that is yours and you're just running it in somebody else's data center is kind of what it amounts to. I don't think, you know, I see what you're saying, Keith, and, and obviously that's that's a that's a solution that, that, that everybody would want. But I just don't see how you have how you, how you run AWS <laughs> proprietary services. In something like Azure or, or, or Google Cloud is is yeah you want it I understand so you can move stuff around without pain and anguish you have to you have to somehow come up with the lowest common denominator across all those and VMware VCF is not far from far from that mark yeah and I think the mismatch is that developers have spoken they don't want it the they, that's not the relationship they want with their infrastructure. It works fine when you're in a traditional enterprise IT kind of siloed environment. But when you want developers to consume 
high value abstracted services from your cloud for your internal cloud or plat platform engineering platform engineering is probably a topic we could have talked about because that's still a hot topic oh, yeah. the when you want that type of relationship vcf by itself doesn't provide that there's an argument that tanzu and tanzu platform and uh the however they they butchered the 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 product naming yeah. that it provides that capability but again customers have not voted with their dollar that that's what they want yeah 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 well i see it as a as a as a as a goal but i don't see a a, a reasonable path to get there from anybody yeah no I one's so. I, I think the ironically the the uh, sometimes you can consider them as hyperscaler sometimes you don't but IBM Cloud is probably the only cloud that actually offers exactly that. You can take IBM Hybrid Cloud platform and run it anywhere. Literally, it is, I'm surprised IBM doesn't make a big deal of it, but it's actually a really cool solution that allows you to take uh, IBM Cloud's native services and basically run it anywhere. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. I have to have to think about doing that some at some point. All right, gents, is there anything else uh, we'd like to talk about as uh, we're getting close to closing here? I, I think it will be interesting to see because, as we well know, like VMware is very entrenched in the enterprise, and we know the enterprises are getting tasked with, um, you know, figuring out AI from the C-suite uh, on how that's going to fit in. It will be interesting to see in twenty twenty four. Any moves that that Broadcom slash VMware um, would would make as far as as enabling uh, vSphere as as an AI platform to run workloads. I think you can already see that, Jason, and, and the VMware yeah. Private AI uh, initiative yeah. and things of that nature. They they've been doing this, you know, multi GPU virtualization for a couple of years now. So they've seen this on the horizon and they've been moving in that space. Uh, they haven't, you know, they haven't taken a leap, I guess yet, but they're, they're close to it. I'd say. Well, like you said, the platforming is still a really big thing for this. Right. And uh, you know, it's one thing to, you know, see models on GitHub, but how do you get that into a workflow? Right. And I, th I think platforming and workflow is going to be a, be a big deal this year. Yeah, the whole relationship with hugging face and stuff will, will help a little bit of that. So yeah, yeah. All right, gents. Anything else? Nope. Other than uh, I'm looking forward to enjoying the holiday. I hope everyone else has a great holiday. Yeah, happy New Year, and it'd be a happy uh, 2024. All right. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, guys. That's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Jason. Bye, Ray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to a system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out. 